together, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, continuing today our teaching time through the book of Ephesians. We are going verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, and because of the kind of literature that Ephesians is, it's important for us to try to understand the logical connections of of each word as much as possible. When we go through other portions of Scripture, we might approach them a bit differently, like larger portions of narrative. The book that we did before Ephesians was the book of Genesis, and we tended to take entire chapters at a time because the point that Moses was trying to make was within the story itself. But Ephesians is not written in story form. Ephesians is written from the heart of an apostle to a church. And they would have hung on each word. They would have taken time and great care to try to understand what Paul was saying to them in detail. That they might know and treasure God with their lives. And so today in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 24, we will learn of new life in Christ. I want to read these verses for us and then try to lay a little bit of context both within setting that Paul wrote and also within this particular chapter so we can understand how to place these verses. So let's read together Ephesians 4 verses 17 through 24. This is the holy word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. May God bless to us the reading of his holy word. Paul wrote this letter from prison. Which means that everything that Paul did and said was very calculated. Whenever you are put into difficult situations, whenever you are facing the storms of life, things tend to become pretty crystal clear. The decisions you make, the words you speak, the things that you do with your resources of time and talent and treasure become very concentrated. Paul found himself in a concentrated time of life. Therefore, the things that we read here in this letter come from the mind of a man who was looking at life very soberly. The sobriety of life was in full view for Paul. He was considering the course of his life. He could have been released from his imprisonment if he would have just rejected the message that he had taught, the gospel, that there was a man named Jesus who was 
the God of eternity who alone was God and who called people to repentance and would grant them his righteousness if they would trust him, that they were to live their lives for him in pure devotion, not Jewish religion, not the Roman Empire or its Caesar, but Jesus alone. Paul could have been released from his imprisonment if he would have just said that he no longer believed those things or perhaps he was under delusion when he taught them. But Paul, under great sobriety, taught these things continuously because he had staked his claim on them. And he believed with all of his heart, all of his mind, and all of his might that the only path to life, that the only path to joy was the path of righteousness initiated by Jesus, enabled by Jesus. So Paul, with sobriety and passion, was laying down his life, quite literally, and he wanted the Ephesian church to do the same, no matter the cost. So every word that comes off the page in the six chapters of Ephesians drips with passion. It, it is embodied with seriousness. And Paul wanted these people that were beloved to him to, to know the path, not just of righteousness, but of joy. Paul wrote to a people that were surrounded by sinfulness. Paul wrote to a people that were surrounded by idolatrous cravings. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan city which was distinguished by wealth, by influence, and perhaps more than anything was distinguished by its devotion to polytheism, to worshiping many gods. These gods, these idols, were not real, but they were manifestations of the hearts of the citizens of this city. Hearts that were bent toward greed, impurity, sexual passion, covetousness, egocentrism. And as you look back at the course of human history, that's what our lowercase g, gods, have always been. Manifestations of our hearts. But these people to whom Paul wrote had been called out of that. They had been called to a different lifestyle. They had been called to reject their former way of life and instead to choose the way of God who had renewed them and called them to a new way. We have talked about this in some detail, but if you remember back at the end of chapter 2, Paul tells these Ephesian Christians, those called out of polytheism and, and sinfulness and darkness, that they were a holy temple in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 21. And in Christ, they were being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This means that they were to represent God to a sinful world. Or even more specifically, to their context, to their city. Characterized by devotion to other gods, though they were not real. 
characterized by, by a lifestyle of sinfulness and rejection of God's moral law. One of the great questions that we must continually ask ourselves, and the Bible indeed does answer it for us, is what is the design of our salvation? What are we saved from? Now truly and most fundamentally, we are saved from God. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but, but when God saves us, He saves us from Himself. He saves us from wrath is one of the beautiful pictures of the sacrifice of Jesus that he became a wrath bearer. He himself took the wrath of God that it might be removed from us. But what else are we saved from? Not just from the wrath of God, but we are saved from the grip of sinfulness, from slavery to sin. And we are saved to something, not just from the grip of sin, but we are saved to a new design, or we could say to a restoration, to a renewal. We saw this at the end of chapter 1. Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, God has put all things under Christ's feet and has given him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is making a new people. Jesus is bringing restoration to the earth. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 4, that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And as we will learn in a few weeks in Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that, here's the design, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Paul's life was under threat. He could have written anything to these people, but he wrote these things. And you have to think that when the elders of this church got this letter and gathered the congregation together, none of them would have missed that particular gathering. They all would have come. Paul had written. They would have sat around with rapt attention while the Elders carefully read each word, maybe more than once, pausing at times, perhaps choking up at times in gratitude, but also at times reading perhaps a bit slowly because of the sobriety of the words. Then over time, as they would have explored the teaching of the letter and and understood all of its implications, they would have, I'm sure, paused at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, to consider in gratitude what had happened to them and to consider with sobriety who they were to be. And so therefore, that's how I want us to approach these verses today. In gratitude that who we once were, those of us who have trusted Christ, are no longer characterized by such a lifestyle, and yet with soberness of mind to 
to consider who we are to continually be becoming. We are saved from the old way, which never delivered on its promises. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. And to a new life, which always will into eternity deliver on its promises. We saw in our section from last week, verses 15 through 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we, all of us, Christ's body around the world, but our particular church, this church, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And before we take our time in verses 17 through 24 today, I want us to remember that Jesus is still ministering to us. We are not left to our own moral bootstraps. Christ is ministering even now to us this morning through his word and through his spirit to remind us what we have been given and who we are to become. And my concern as we approach the heart of Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, which have a lot of commands, is that we will forget what we have learned so far in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and truly the beginning of chapter 4. Here's what I mean. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, as I've already talked about, drip with grace. Reminders of, of all the promises that have been granted to us in Christ. Saved because God chose us. United to Christ because God decided it. Brought back to life, not of our own volition, but because of the sheer love of God. And such love exceeds our wildest imaginations. And more could be said if we were to review Ephesians 1-3 through in detail. But then you come to chapters 4-6 through and there is a transition. The transition is, in light of all that is true of you, in light of all the gifts that have been granted to you, the privileges that are yours in Christ, now walk this way, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And so we might look at it this way. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, privilege and promise. Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, responsibility. But if you're like me, as soon as that word responsibility is, is uttered, a little shiver runs through my heart. Guilt can flood my mind, shame, because I know I don't measure up. I know there are parts of my heart and my mind and my actions that are not in keeping with my new identity in Christ, Ephesians 1-3. That's not all bad. Guilt. Fear. Shame. While not great motivators to ongoing righteousness, maybe the Spirit's work of pointing out portions of my life that don't please my God. But as I've said, such motivations, fear and guilt and shame, cannot motivate us toward ongoing living for God. Steady walk in righteousness. So my concern is that we will come to Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 and, and we'll just see it as a bunch of laws. And then we'll become discouraged and we'll walk away. Perhaps some of us pious because we see ourselves as better than those around us. That becomes the measuring stick. And 
the rest of us, perhaps most of us, a bit discouraged and even defeated because we know we can't keep these things in perfection. And while these calls upon our life are are true calls, Paul didn't just give them suggestions. They were born out of who these people had become. That is to say, to be hopefully as clear as I can, how we walk is a direct result of who we are. Our worship flows from transformed hearts created by, enabled by, Jesus himself. And I think Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24 will keep us from going off the rails into turning into pure legalists who just obey because we have to, always living in guilt, fear, and shame, but instead living by the power of the Spirit, trusting Jesus the Savior who has not abandoned us, but still in an ongoing sense is saving us. So let's study these verses in some detail. Verses 17 through 19, I think teach us this simple truth. We must refuse to return to the old ways before our renewal. We must refuse to return to the old ways, the old ways that were characteristic of us before our renewal. What are Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, if not a reminder of our renewal? We have been made new in Jesus. We saw this back in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast or brag. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those are promises. That's a little peering into our renewal. So therefore, Paul can say in this passage of exhortation in Ephesians 4, 17, Now this I say, as a result of the fact that Christ is ministering in and through you, growing the body, verses 15 through 16, Now as a result, I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. Our English translation doesn't quite bring this out, but Paul is using emphatic language here. It's language of declaration. Paul's getting up in the pulpit, so to speak. He's preaching to them through his pen. Now I'm declaring to you, in Jesus, I'm an apostle of Jesus. I've been called by him I'm his messenger, I'm his mouthpiece, Paul is saying. Furthermore, we together, Paul identifies with the Ephesian church, we together are part of his body. So as an apostle chosen by Jesus, as a part of the body of Jesus, I declare to you with with emphatic authority, don't walk like you used to. We take generally speaking, the last Sunday of our calendar year 
and have a testimony service. And, and that's always a really great time. Um, but it's interesting whenever we do that, that people have a hard time volunteering for it. And one of the reasons for that, among many, probably the chief of which is you're just freaked out to get in front of people, but the chief of which, um, beyond that, maybe chief number two, is that you don't think your story is that compelling. You've, you've heard the big ones, you know, the people who were saved from like heroin addiction and, and maybe drunkenness, and then one day after drinking like a bottle of whiskey, they got in their Prius and they were headed toward the next bar before last call, and somehow, you know, they lost control because, of course, they were drunk out of their minds, and they went off an embankment, and there's no way they should have lived, and then the paramedics come with the jaws of life and pry off the door of the Prius, and then you just walk away. You don't even have to, like, go to the ER. And, you know, you've heard those kind of testimonies before, and, and then you just sit there in rapt attention. You're like, oh, it's so amazing. Like, God's grace shines through your story. But then you think about your story, like, you grew up with flannel graphs and wearing little clip-on ties to church when you were a little kid, and you always went, you never missed, and you went to VBS, and you wore the Awana vest with, like, the big knotted thing for your kerchief, and, and, and then, like, when you were six, you were convicted about your sin, and you knelt beside your little Mickey Mouse blanket with your mom, and she held your hand, and, and you prayed and asked Jesus to save you, and, and your story is kind of boring, right? Like, and your background is, like, Awana, and this other person's background is heroin, well, which is more compelling, right? This church, to use an anachronism, we're a bunch of heroin addicts. By and large, these would not have been people that had knelt beside their bed with their mom after Awana and received Jesus. These would have been largely adults who had lived very wicked lifestyles. They remembered. It, it wasn't that far off for a lot of them. There would have been some religious people mixed in here, even some Jews. We know that from Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, that, that there, were, there was a mixed company here. But, but by and large, these would have been people with very compelling stories. From, from darkness to light, major transition, clear conversion. They remembered. When Paul writes in verses 17 through 19, describing what they used to be like, they would have felt it. For some of us, that's perhaps a bit difficult, but I think perhaps it's a bit difficult because we're not honest with ourselves. Because even those of us who perhaps were converted when we were little chaps, if we're being honest, the echoes of such sinful inclinations still reside in our hearts. Let's see if that's the case. So Paul, with authority and passion, declares to them that they can't be who they used to be. Now, ironically, most of them were Gentiles. But what he's saying to them is, you've been made a new people. Your ethnicity no longer defines you. Now you're in Christ. You are a new humanity. Ethnically, still Gentiles. But having now been brought into the people of God, they were no longer defined by ethnicity. Formerly, end of verse 17, 
They walked in the futility of their minds. What's this mean? This word is probably not one that we use a lot in our language anymore. I, I doubt you use the word futile with your children this past week. It carries the idea of, of emptiness, frustration, and dead-endedness. After the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, this has characterized humanity. Not having purpose, not having meaning. And, and notice that Paul says this is in their minds. It's, it's how they think. It's not just their decisions. It's their decision-making faculties. It's, it's the way they look at the world. And it's kind of like this. The idea that somehow going our own way will ultimately bring us satisfaction and joy, it never works. I think that if you catch a person who's not a Christian, who's not come to faith in Jesus, and who leads a pretty sinful lifestyle, if you were to catch them at an honest moment, maybe after a bender, maybe after a sobering moment, and ask them, does such a lifestyle really ever satisfy you? I think the answer would be no in a moment of honesty and reflection. Even now, however, we still feel this, don't we? When we give ourselves over to sin and rejection of God's way, we feel the futility, the futility of going our own way. I think perhaps Paul has in mind the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God warns his people off from in Genesis chapter 2. It was not wrong to know good and evil, but it was Wrong to know good and evil experientially apart from vital connection to God. That was the warning that God gave them. He gave them a choice. Choose to experience life in good and evil under my care and my guidance or go it alone. And Satan, the opposer of all things good, comes to the humans and deceives them into believing that they could be gods themselves, deities to themselves, knowing and choosing their own way. And the horror of this is that, verse 18, instead of being enlightened, they became darkened in their understanding. And what is the middle of verse 18? They were alienated from the life of God. That was the result of choosing to pursue knowledge of good and evil on their own. They thought they would become gods, and actually what happened is they lost God. That characterizes our world, sadly. People living in futility, seeking to know and understand, seeking enlightened living, Rejecting, however, God's way, and instead, they lose everything. 
no amount of alcohol or drugs or sex or money or success or laughter or leisure or vacation or any such things, which in and of themselves may not all be bad, but when those things become the path to joy, when those things are abused and worshipped and adored rather than God, what happens? We lose our lives. We lose our minds and we walk around in futileness, futility, and darkness. And we lose vital connection to God. I think even those of us who have been rejoined to God in Christ can feel this sometimes. You'll hear it from people. I hear it relatively often as I meet with people in discipleship and counseling. I feel distant from God, they will say. God seems a million miles away. I'm, I'm no longer connected to God, people will say. And, and maybe you feel like that today. I mean, your confession is that Jesus is your only hope for righteousness. You have been adopted into the family of God, but, but you might be feeling this today. You feel like you are alienated from God because you have given yourself over back to the old ways. Does that characterize you today? talk about hope in a few moments, but perhaps these words should lay heavy on your heart for a few moments. And if we're being honest, all of us are there sometimes. All of us still have tendencies to go the old way, dabbling, trying, The old way is still alluring. The old way is, is still compelling. We have used this illustration before, but it's, it's a good one. It has helped me, frankly, many times in my own battle against sin. You remember the old mythological story of the sailors who heard the siren song from the seashore. It was beautiful, compelling, alluring. And the story goes in the mythology that the sailors were so compelled and allured by the song that they would go toward the shore, losing their seamanship minds, forgetting the fact that just under the surface of the water were treacherous rocks which would shipwreck them and destroy them. And the sirens were not beautiful maidens calling them to pleasure, they were devilish women calling them to their destruction. That's sin. Sin, sin is alluring. Sin is deceiving. Sin can be hypnotic. But where does it lead? Whether you were born again at the age of six or 36, We've all dabbled, we've all tried, and we all still do. But Paul, facing the end of his own life, perhaps, calls to them to consider the course of their own. And says, don't live that way. It's empty. 
And notice at the end of verse 18 that, that they are this way because they're ignorant due to their hardness of heart. That means that their mindset, the way that they look at the world, is an issue of the heart. Here's Paul's point. It's not merely an issue of rationale. It's not merely an issue of reasoning. Although people alienated from the life of God don't reason well. But the, but the question is why? Why is that so? Where does it begin? What's the root? If the fruit is, is ignorance, a darkened mind, futile thinking, what is the root of it? And that's what the end of verse 18 I think is. It's, it's the root of the problem. Hard hearts. Or, to put it more simply, it's a worship issue. What it is they treasure. Is this not the problem of Adam and Eve? They treasured the wrong things and then everything fell apart. They worshiped the wrong things, self, and everything went to hell in a handbasket. And isn't that our problem, especially after we come to faith? We have the ability to reason. Our rationale changes. Our mindset changes. Our worldview is different. And what leads us back to the old paths? Is it not a worship problem inside of us? Or perhaps to put it even a little bit more simply, what we crave? What we treasure? When we crave and treasure the wrong things, we think the wrong way. And this is the way it has always been. God could have made us to be pure automatons, robotic-like. God could have chosen to make us those who just respond to stimuli. He could have made us image bearers who just did the things that we should do. But in some senses, we would have been less than an image bearer then. Because part of being an image bearer is having affections, desires. God made Adam and Eve and every son and daughter of Adam and Eve to have affections. That's part of being an image bearer. God has affections. God feels. God hates God loves, God treasures, God is jealous in a holy, righteous way. God has affections. He made us as image bearers to be like him. And one of the ways that we are like him is that we have affections. Therefore, and, and I don't think this is, is parsing it too thinly, therefore, in some sense, everything we do is an act of worship. How you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your talent. You're always making value choices. In one way or another, we're always worshiping. And at the end of the day, the way that people look at the world and the decisions they make is ultimately an act of worship. It springs from the heart. And so I ask you today, what are you worshiping? And how is that affecting the way that you are approaching the distribution of said resources, time, talent, and treasure? 
is the distribution of such resources toward righteous and holy things? Or is it toward filling up what is lacking in the void of your heart to bring yourself a temporary fix? You see, it's easy to characterize the heroin addict as a fool. It's easy to look down our long, proverbial noses at them as those who make irrational choices. But, but isn't sin like that for most of us? We can get very addicted to it, and we just want the next fix. We can turn anything into our drug of choice. It could be our job. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be our money. It could be our leisure time. It could be all kinds of things. But God has given us gifts, not so that we will worship them in and of themselves, but, but that we will worship Him. And gratitude and thanksgiving that He's given us said gifts. Money, marriages, children, sex, jobs. These are wonderful gifts. But they are not to be worshipped in and of themselves because they will become like temporary heroin fixes. And the thing about heroin is that you need more and more and more. Because the opioid receptors in your body eventually become somewhat numb to the old doses. And what do you need more of? More doses. More and more. And we take time to step back and ponder in our sobriety such decisions, such a lifestyle. We see it as foolish. And that's one of the reasons why we come together today. Now, I want to remind you that your acceptance before God, your position as a son or daughter of God is not because of your merits. It's not because of your actions. I already warned you. And we must be very careful as we approach Ephesians chapters 4 through 6 that we don't just turn this into a legalistic code so God will stay pleased with us. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, if he has taken your sin and granted you his righteousness, God is pleased with you today because you are a son or daughter. And yet, God does care how we walk. And those that he has adopted into his family should live according to the family name. They should live according to their new identity. We should not become callous, verse 19, hard-hearted. We should not be characterized by giving ourselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That characterizes the world around us. Is not 21st century America much like first century Ephesus. I mean, think about it. Think about the language Paul uses in verse 19. Give themselves up to sensuality. That, that's like sexual lust in the original language. And then greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is very interesting language. They have this, this sort of insatiable desire or lust to practice every kind of impurity possible. It doesn't mean they will practice every kind of impurity possible, but, but they could because they're looking for their next fix because the old fix doesn't satisfy anymore. We must refuse to return to the old ways before our renewal. And so I say to you today, if, if in any way, small or big, you feel a 
tinge today of conviction over the course of your walk, of the way you are walking, the, the trajectory of your life. Confess and repent. And you can do this with humble faith because God, your Father, who views you through imputed righteousness, righteousness granted to you from His Son, delights in forgiving His sons and daughters and delights in transforming your heart toward new affections. He will never keep you at arm's length God will never play passive-aggressive with you. God will never cold shoulder with you. He'll, he'll never give you the silent treatment. He substituted His Son and poured out the fierce, hot anger of His wrath against the Son, not because the Son sinned, but because you did, because I did. And will He not graciously patiently and faithfully forgive us when we still wander toward our old inclinations and proclivities? Will he not delight in welcoming the wandering son or daughter home? He always does. Your identity as a son or daughter has everything to do with the Son of God. And because the Son of God pleads the merits of his righteousness, seated at the right hand of God, even now you can come in full repentance and your Father will welcome you home. And in some senses, if we're being honest, this is an everyday kind of practice. Now, some of us may wander far to a very far country and we may have gotten into a pen with the pigs. But most of us just go off the path a bit, get soiled a bit, and we need daily cleansing as Jesus teaches the disciples in John chapter 13. We need to be washed each day. So whatever state you find yourself in today, having wandered far, or perhaps strayed a bit, come back in full repentance and faith. And as we say often around here, we are once regenerate, once born again, but always repenting. New birth is an instantaneous, settled fact. But we are always repenting. Not just of overt actions, but inward inclinations. May God do that for us today. We must refuse to return to the old ways before our renewal because we have been called to be this temple, a dwelling place for God, because we have called to be a holy people for God. And now, as we will see in verses 20 through 24, Jesus will keep his promises that we read from Ephesians 5 earlier. One day he will present us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Verses 20 through 24, in most of our modern translations, probably get it a little bit wrong. I'm going to have to explain that to you. Paul says in verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. This old way, this old way of living... It's not the way you learn Christ. It reminds us to some degree of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, now that we've been given salvation, sheerly by grace, do we get to walk however we want? What's Paul's response? Romans chapter 6. God forbid. 
may it never be. It has always been a criticism of Protestant theology that because we believe in imputed righteousness, that it's free. We don't, we don't earn it. We don't merit it. It's just credited to us. It's imputed to us. That that will lead to what theologians call antinomian living. Anti, against, nomian, law, anti-law. We will, we will live against the law. We will do whatever we want. That has long been a criticism of, of this idea that we are justified by grace through faith alone. But it's interesting as you read the New Testament, there's never room for that. That is never the conclusion of the writers of the Bible. Rather, those of us who have been saved by grace through faith alone have the responsibility to walk in newness of life. We did not learn Christ that old way that we get a little bit of Jesus and we get to do whatever we want. That is not the way Paul taught these people. It's not the way the elders had been instructed by Paul to lead these people. And now Paul writes a letter to remind them of the tradition. Assuming, verse 21, they've heard about him, about Jesus, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, Paul's saying, we've taught you this. This is, this is your faith tradition. All truth is embodied in Jesus, who himself is the word of God. We have pointed you to him. He is your hope for righteousness, and he is the standard of righteousness. He is the one who has made you new, reconciled you to God, and he is the one who has called you to live like he did and enables you to live like he did. Verse 22, how were they taught? To put off the old self. Now, this is probably where a lot of our modern translations go a little bit off. To put on the new self, verse 22, to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, verse 23, and to put on the new self, verse 24, those read like commands. I'm not going to get down into the grammatical weeds here for just a moment, and I'm not going to tell you any Greek words. It's possible, grammatically, linguistically, to translate these verses this way, as commands or imperatives. But that's probably not the best way to translate the original language. Better, verse 22, could be translated like this. Your old self has been put off. You are being renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your minds. And verse 24, the old self, the new self is being put on. The reason for that largely is structural. Verse 25, we'll get into next week. Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth, and he'll give more commands after that. The idea seems to be, because of identity, verse 25, now go do these things. It would seem a bit superfluous or unnecessary to say that you're putting off all these things, you should be putting on and putting off, and then tell them to do specific putting on and putting off in verses 25 through 32. Rather, Paul is grounding the commands that we will learn about next week in verses 25 through 32 in what has already happened to them and is happening in them. I think I can illustrate this in a couple of different passages. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 6. 
Romans chapter 6, a passage that we have referenced briefly and one with which many of you are familiar. Paul talks to us about identity. Romans 6 verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, this is Jesus, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul is arguing for in Romans chapter 6 is what God has done in us. The old nature has been removed. A new nature has been given. Now, to be sure, Romans chapter 6, verse 12, we must make decisions. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey your passions. We have to choose not to sin. We've already seen that really in verse 17. We, we aren't going to walk the way we used to, and we will see it in verses 25 through 32. Specific ways in which we should not walk the way we used to. But Paul is very careful in his theology to root his audience in identity and then to call them to new patterns of thinking and living. I think that's what he's doing here in Ephesians chapter 4. Look with me also, if you don't mind, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the apostle says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 21, for our sake, God, he made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is an identity issue. Old nature crucified with Christ. New nature given through resurrection. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, Paul is calling them to be reminded of their identity. What has been done in and through them. And again, that's what he's always been teaching them. And that's what their elders have been teaching them. The old self had been removed from them, verse 22. It was their former manner of life. That old self was corrupt. It was characterized by deceitful desires. We've already talked about those in great detail in verses 17 through 19. Instead, what had happened to them? Their minds had been renewed through the preaching and teaching of the word over and over and over again. And now, verse 24, the new self had been granted. And I think another clue why we should view these really as promises rather than commands is because of the way verse 24 ends. This new self had been created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It was a gift to them. They were a new humanity created in the Son. This is why we can entitle this section, verses 17 through 24, New Life in Christ. Now certainly we are called to practice this new life in Christ, but but primarily Paul's point in this section is that we've been granted new life in Christ. It's a promise. 
Now certainly as we get down into verses 25 through 32, we will see putting off and putting on. It will be very clear. We won't be able to escape it. I am not telling you that we don't put on and put off. Of course we do. But I want to encourage your hearts today, especially in verses 23 through 24, by telling you, your old nature, crucified with Christ. Your mind, it's different now. Progressively different. And who are you now? You have a new nature. Careful, conservative theologians are generally pretty discerning in the way they talk about this whole subject. Here's what I mean. Sometimes you will hear people say that we have to fight our old nature still. They mean well. They, they don't mean that, that somehow we're left to ourselves to fight sin on our own. But careful theologians are generally pretty discerning in, in saying that the old nature, it's dead. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6, verses we read from just a few moments ago. And what's happened instead? We've been given a new nature. Now, if you're a careful thinking theologian, you're saying to yourself, well, why do I still sin? The power of sin has been broken. We don't have to sin. The penalty of sin has been removed. Those of us who have trusted Jesus are no longer condemned. And yet the presence of sin remains. These careful theologians who would help us understand that the old nature is dead would say, according to Paul's writings, like in Romans chapter 6, that we still have this thing called the flesh. In other words, we still live in this world, in these bodies, and these bodies in some senses are still magnetized towards sin. And until Jesus comes and brings total restoration, total renewal, while sinful principles and inclinations still remain, we have to fight them. We must fight them. And the beauty is we can fight them. And that's why I think this emphasis that I'm bringing before you in verses 23 to 24 is important. Paul's not just saying that you must fight sin. Fight sin. He's saying you can fight sin. Because after all, as we've already said at the end of verse 24, God's making you new. He's united you to Jesus the one who, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is a life-giving spirit. Jesus is creating a new humanity. This means that the gospel is not just about you individually not going to hell. The gospel is more cosmic in focus and scope than you can possibly imagine. Jesus is not just saving a white 40-year-old male in Lewis Center, so he doesn't go to the pit of hell. He is doing that, but he's doing more than that. He is creating a new humanity. Old humanity, those in Adam, according to Paul in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, condemned. Those who are united to Jesus, who Paul calls the second Adam, life-giving spirit, new humanity. And even creation itself is watching the drama of human redemption awaiting its finality because then itself, creation, will be renewed. The cosmos will come back 
into pure, holy function. And Jesus will renew all things to himself. And brothers and sisters, that has begun in you in the here and now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 promises to you. Those of you who have been united to Jesus are part of this new humanity. Old nature, gone. New nature, granted. How do we appropriate this? How do we apply this to our lives? Let's close with these two thoughts. First, we must saturate our hearts and minds with God's word to expose sin and point us to true delight. Notice all the references to thinking here in this section. And then notice how Paul reminds them how they had been taught. And then notice in verse 23, this very critical point of being renewed in the spirit of their mind. Something that God was doing in them. Something that God was granting them. But how do we connect to that? How do we appropriate that for ourselves? Our hearts and minds must be saturated with God's word. That's the only way that sin will be exposed for what it is. And that's the only way that we will choose real delight instead. It is so easy to be caught up in the rat race, the insatiable desire for sin, because we just want to be happy. After all, as I said earlier, God made us with affections. God made us with desires. It's part of being a worshiper. We don't just respond to stimuli. We we respond to what we desire. What does God's word do? It shows us that that evil desires will never satisfy. They'll always come up short. They will never deliver on what they promise. What does Jesus do alternatively? He always delivers on what he promises. Reminds us of what the prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 2. That God's people Israel had committed a great evil. Because they had forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, for broken cisterns. Those of you who read sequentially through the Bible might come to the prophets and groan. Oh, i got to read through the prophets. They're so long and they're so redundant. And then you come across Jeremiah chapter 2. Because you're coming to the word faithfully each day. Hoping that God will, will ignite your faith and you see that. And you say, ah, oh, that's me. I turn to broken cisterns that, that hold no water. And no wonder I'm so thirsty. No wonder my throat is parched. Why would I not stay committed to the God who is the fountain of living waters, who alone can slake my thirst and satisfy the innermost recesses of all my desires? That's what the Word of God does for us. So we listen to preaching, and we read on our own. We go to small group and discipleship so that Many, many, many times through the week we are exposed to the word and therefore having our sin brought into the light and being pointed to true delight in Jesus. And lastly, isolation from Christ's body, the church, is dangerous. We need each other to fight sin and treasure God. Is that not what we learned previously in verses 12 through 16? That the body builds itself up in love? But we... We like to live in isolation. We like to hide in the darkness. We don't want our sin exposed. Like Adam and Eve, we foolishly believe that pursuing knowledge and, and the, of good and evil on our own will somehow lead to happiness. It never does. 
But then we isolate ourselves and, and we stay far away because we're afraid of what people will think of us. Forgetting that any righteousness or standing we have is given to us by a gift anyway. It's not something we've earned. And the longer we stay isolated, the more dangerous it becomes. As we've talked about more than once in Ephesians chapter 20, when Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders and told them, I'll never see you again. I'm going to be taken away and arrested, and I'm going to lay my life down for the sake of the gospel. What does he say? Fierce wolves will come in seeking to devour the sheep. You've watched old nature shows like the old Marty Stauffer Animal Kingdom. You ever watch that when you were a kid? That was like a big deal when I was a kid. You know, Saturday night, we'd get together and watch Marty Stauffer. He had a great beard and great, like, trail clothes, and he would go out and, like, hug grizzly bears and stuff. Um, but, you know, they would show these things, and you can see this on modern nature programming even better in HD, where you'll have, like, this, this elk herd or this bison herd, and you'll have, like, a little one or a sick, anemic one, and then what do the wolves do? They go get the easy ones. They don't get the 2,000-pound bull and the vibrancy of his youth because they'll get stomped to death. They get the sick, anemic ones who are on the fringes. Be careful, my brothers and sisters. Do not live in isolation, either literally or metaphorically. Be all in. Because when you do so, we help each other. We help each other fight sin, and we help each other treasure God. And in a community of grace, which we strive for here, because after all, our standing is not because we are inherently righteous. Our standing is because Jesus is gracious and grants us his righteousness. And therefore, we treat each other with grace, and we help each other fight sin, and we help each other treasure God with patience and humility, bearing with one another in love. This is not a comparison game. This is a pointing each other to Jesus pursuit. So there's two applications as we walk away together today. Be saturated in heart and mind in the Word of God, and live in union with your brothers and sisters that Jesus might be praised and that you might find real joy. So I say to you in summary, be careful. Be careful not to turn to the old paths. They never deliver on what they promise. And instead, rest in the fact that you have been given new life. Your old nature has been crucified. You have been given a new nature. And this is the path of joy in which your creator is glorified as this new humanity is formed, and you find your deepest longings met by the one who made you, by the one who has saved you, by the one who is making you new. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now please take the truth of the scriptures. Do not allow the evil one to pluck the seeds away, but instead... Help us to understand them and to embrace them. I pray that you will help us to fight sin. I pray that you will help us to do so, not in our own power, but because you have given us a new nature. May we not submit ourselves to the yoke of slavery of sin, but instead choose righteousness because you have given us this new nature. Father, glorify yourself by continuing to make us new and grant us the longings of our heart. Thank you, Jesus, that you are creating this new humanity. You've made us a part of it. And I do pray, Holy Spirit, if there are those here today that are not yet part of this new humanity, who have not trusted Jesus, who have not been united to him by faith, that you will end that today and grant them new birth. So help us, we pray, to lead lives that are pleasing to you, Father. Uh, we can't do this on our own, but because you have enabled it and called us to it, 
you've created us in this new image. I pray that you'll continue to be faithful to your promises and you will transform us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.